Good morning, I'm Melissa Kierenke, and this morning's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 1, verses 17 through 27. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow, the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Sometimes when we're working through a biblical book, it might address topics that we hadn't thought of or things that we're not dealing with, and it teaches us, instructs us, or prepares us. But other times, like this time, it speaks right into a moment that we're going through, whether it's personally or even as a church. Casey in his call to worship to our congregation this morning, talked about the three deaths in our church family. And just as one of your under-shepherds here at this church, I had the privilege, the ministry of being with all three of those families this very week. Sitting with the Oberg family, talking through a forthcoming funeral, and just hearing stories of a man's life sitting with the Atterberries, with Mark's little granddaughter literally trying to play with my toes, and seeing this beautiful, beautiful little girl who doesn't quite understand the mourning that her mom or her family or her grandma are going through, or sitting on Tuesday night with Larry Frederick and just seeing him and his Daughter Julie say goodbye to their wife and mother, wife of 68 years. Those are powerful moments in a person's life. Those are powerful moments that we're all going to face or have faced in some way. And in a church's life, those are powerful moments. And we are people of the gospel. We worship a crucified king. So when it comes to death and sin and brokenness, when it comes to the resurrection 
and the hope of eternal life, this is something that is part of the calories of our existence. And so when a text speaks about lament or addresses a funeral song, this week especially, we just listen more closely. We're more in tune. So this is a text that probably on the surface might be tricky to know how to read. Verses 17 and 18, David is uh, introducing this lament song, a funeral song called the Song of the Bow. And then in verses 19 to 25, he reads it. And then finally, at the end of this text, he shares personal lament for his dear friend and brother Jonathan. And I want to show you each of those three parts this morning as we look at God's word. But before we do, would you just pray with me together? Father, we, we mourn this week the loss of our brothers and our sister. And we don't just mourn for them, we mourn with their families, but we are their families as well. By the blood of Christ, we are siblings. So help us as a church and a culture that wants to only talk about the young, wants to be death-free. Help us, the people of the cross and the resurrection, to think properly about death and funeral. Thank you that your word isn't afraid to touch on that or even to show us this funeral song to teach us, to form us, to prepare us, or even now to comfort us in this particular moment. So open our eyes to the wondrous things of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those first two verses in our text, I hope you have your Bible open, looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1. David's lament for Saul directs us to see the importance of the Christian funeral. Probably not something we think a lot about. It's probably not something we want to think a lot about. God's word directs us there. We get a glimpse into the funeral service for Saul and Jonathan in these, service, in these verses. We don't, we don't get a ton of details. We just get one little glimpse Note how David commanded that this lament be taught. Did you see that in verse 18? David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, verse 17 and then 18, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. That's interesting. He's commanding it be taught. He's assuming that there should be proper remembering, a proper mourning, a process. We're right then to see that funerals have a certain formality that is good to practice, that are, that are like grooves formed over centuries of the church thinking about how to deal with death, how to direct ourselves to the resurrection, how to ground our lives and our deaths and all about us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. You can even see how Scripture is giving such hints of such practices with language like this. 
Why is it called the lament of the bow or the song of the bow? Well, a bow is mentioned in verse 22 as belonging to Jonathan. But interestingly, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18, Jonathan gave a bow to David. It was a sign of a bond, the deep friendship. So, so to be honest, probably verse 18 and then the last couple verses meant to form some kind of a, a bridge, a literary design that this song of the bow is mourning the loss of a deep friend, which he ends with, and we'll talk about in a bit. But that, that's the song of the bow. There's a lament for a dear friend. Interestingly, the end of verse 18 talks about this being written in the book of Jashar. If you're wondering, I don't think Jash the book of Jashar is in my Bible, you'd be right. It's probably not in any one of your libraries either. We have no written existing copy of this book, yet it is mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. The only thing we can gather is that it was some kind of uh, testimony recording of her heroic exploits in the history of Israel. The word jashar means the upright or the just. The book of the upright, the book of the just. We probably would use different words than that. Uh, we, we, the, the, the book of heroes, we might say, in our culture. But it's trying to say that these kind of practices became normalized. You, you can see even, even why we have maybe books that aren't in our biblical canon, Old and New Testament, but even in church tradition, something like the Book of Common Prayer or certain creedal formulations that are, are totally to be submitted to the authority of Scripture, are not canonical or inspired or inerrant, etc., but are significant to the practices of a people. The Book of Jashar would suggest such a thing. You'll see how honor is given to King Saul, or we could even just say to God's king in general, but we also learn the importance of formal mourning. And I wonder if that's something we just need to hear this in our culture today. It is okay. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's okay to cry, to feel sadness, to ache and be broken. It is good to have formal practices of mourning. And it's not just good for those of us who are adults, it's actually good for our kids to understand, to have space and to learn how to, what it means to be human and deal with the brokenness of the human condition. And that's actually where a Christian funeral comes into place. As we're wanting to teach lament to God's people today, we might want to give a little bit of a category of sorts for thinking about the Christian funeral. What is it supposed to entail? You and I all may have a few thoughts on elements or practices we do, but is there like an undergirding theology of a funeral that we could say the Bible might give? I wonder if you could summarize it briefly by using the three primary virtues of Christianity found in 1 Corinthians 13. Probably if you have any exposure to the Bible and Christianity, you have heard of these three core virtues, faith, hope, and love. I wonder if that might be a good way of summarizing a theology of a funeral. I even put this in your notes for you, for you to see what I'm talking about. We start with faith. 
Faith is, should be a core element of a Christian funeral. Faith presents us. The funeral presents to us all, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, the need for Christ. Like if Jesus really is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, then essential to a Christian, mourning as a Christian, is the need for Christ. And this includes both the reality of sin and the gifts of the Savior. All of those are presented in the funeral because we understand that God is creator and then he is redeemer and he is the new creator. I literally cannot get through that second song that we sang today without tearing up. Literally cannot. I will see how I do in the second service. Totally failed in the first. I'm glad Vera was singing next to me because I could not get all the words out. It's all creation groaning. The leaders today, Greg, speaks out. And we say, it is. Is the new creation coming? It is. That summarizes the span of our world today. What a beautiful song to sing at a funeral. An acknowledgement of our need for Christ, but a need not only because of our brokenness, but because of the healing and the redemption that he gives. Second virtue that helps explain the, a theology of the funeral would be hope. The funeral not only roots us in our need for Christ and therefore presents the, our faith in Christ to us, but also the promises of Christ. The funeral should direct us, should proclaim the promises of Christ. And this can include both the reality of death but they're also the gifts of the resurrection. Thinking through our mortality may be more important in our culture now than it's ever been. Mortality matters. Bodies are frail. Sin is having its way with us. And we know that. And the funeral acknowledges the reality of death. And the brokenness of bodies and a temporary separation between the people of God. But it also points to the resurrection. Praise be to God. As I sat with the Fredericks on Tuesday night, as literally Pat's body was being prepared and taken, be taken away by the funeral home, we were reminding one another of the hope of the resurrection. Absent from the body, Present with the Lord. For how many years did Pat struggle to breathe? How many long tubes are running through her house to give her the appropriate amount of oxygen so she could breathe? No longer is that a worry for her. But these are truths that are core to what it means to think Christianly about death, which also means, because it's Christian, new life. It's not just the need of Christ, faith. It's the promise of Christ, hope. Finally, love. You could say that a funeral is not just presenting the need for Christ or proclaiming the promise of Christ, but is practicing the ministry of Christ. The reality of grief and loss, but the gifts of the church 
to love and care for one another. There will be funerals coming very soon. Church family, you are commanded in Scripture to mourn with those who mourn. Gather, pray, love, hug. When I walked into the Frederick house at 8.30ish on Tuesday night, the first thing I did is hug that 80-some-year-old man. He's a little smaller than I. I don't care. I put my big arms around him, and he entered in. And I squeezed him tightly as we both wept in his living room. Because I'm his brother, one of his under-shepherds. I loved his wife. And we will miss her, and we mourn. But he shouldn't sit alone in that moment. He should be with his church family. So should you. So should I. The funeral is and involves the ministry of Christ. We cry together. We hope together. We ground ourselves in our faith in Christ together. We're not used to this talk of death in our culture There's an author that I appreciate. His name is J.I. Packer. Have you heard of him before? He was a little nerdy, so some of his things were harder to read. But in one of his more practical books, he made a statement that I wanted to share with you. It's a deep one. It's one you might circle around a bit and think through. He wrote it later in his life. I mean, he was a man so gifted in his mind and a lover of books who lost his eyesight at one point and could no longer read, which in one sense seemed like a waste. The man needs to read because he needs to write and he needs to speak. And he said in an interview that he wanted to learn to submit himself to King Jesus in every way, even if it was the loss of something he loved. I remember hearing that interview and learning from this dear brother who is now gone home to be with the Lord. But here's the statement I want you to want you to know. He says this, only when you know how to die can you know how to live. Only when you know how to die can you know how to live. Now think of a death-free culture. Then you want to talk about death. Which means they don't want to deal with the realities of life, the depth of life in all its facets. They want surfacy, hallmarky. They want bows, decorations. Packer says, as he was nearing the end of his own life, only when you know how to die can you know how to live. So you think of those three primary virtues of the Christian faith that I think can explain well theology of a funeral. Faith, hope, and love. The need for Christ, the promise of Christ, the ministry of Christ that may not just be about a funeral and proper elements and structure and posture that may actually be theology for living. The centrality of our need for Christ. In 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 a massively broken world, the promises of Christ to sustain us, and then the ministry of Christ, both to us and through us. 
Well, we get to those middle section, and, and if you're probably most modern readers, verses 19 to 25 seem a little strange. That is ancient Bible poetry. You might not like modern American poetry. You're certainly not going to like ancient Israelite poetry. You're not going to notice this as much, but I'll give you a couple things. It's actually written with certain forms of parallelism. It's even structured in what's called a chiasm, right? Where the end and the beginning line up to perfection. So if you look at the beginning of verse 19, which is verse 19 and verse 25, note it says, A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. And then jump to 25, it reverses that order. See that? But says almost the same phrases. How the mighty have fallen in battle, Jonathan lies slain on your heights. You see that? That is total clue that the whole thing is structured like a chiasm with the center being this honorific language in verses 22 or so of Saul and of Jonathan. Now again, that doesn't probably mean a whole lot to us. We probably prefer bullet points than poetry, but it's there. And this funeral song models for us the formal expression of mourning and grief. Now, now it's strange. It, it, it says, like, a gazelle lies on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. That sounds strange. Let, let me translate some of that for you. Verse 19. Such a beautiful and powerful person has died. Or how about verse 20? It sounds like they, you're not supposed to talk about it. Don't let them, those outside the covenant of God hear about it. But I think this is what David is saying. Those who have disdain for God and his people will rejoice. But this is no announcement of victory for them or their gods. He's not just telling them not to hear about it. He's like, they will never understand what God was really doing with all of this. Verse 21, mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. Now you're thinking, what are, what are the mountains of Gilboa? That was where they died. That was a place of death. And it says, may you never May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. So what is 21 saying? I think it's saying this. The death, and, the death of Saul and Jonathan is now a place to be cursed. What you thought was a victory was actually a sign of judgment. But beware, enemies of Israel, for what happened to Israel's king was by God's design. That's what that phrase at the end of verse 21, I think, is trying to say. No longer rubbed with oil. It, that you would rub a shield with oil before you'd go to battle so that it would be in good working order for it to function. By saying it was no longer rubbed with oil, the text is almost saying God knew what he was doing. God was finished with this king and had a new king to come. So you think, evil ones, those opposed to God, that you were victorious. But God was just transitioning his leadership plan that he intended from the beginning. 
That gets us to verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. And I think this is the central part of the song of the bow. I think we translate it like this. Make no mistake. God has done what he intended to do through the life and death of Saul and Jonathan. Make no mistake. God has done what he intended to do. Verse 23 says this, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Let me translate that in our cultural idioms. Verse 23, for their divine purposes, Saul and Jonathan are to be remembered with honor and admiration. God used them as he saw fit. And we acknowledge that. Finally, verses 24 and 25. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. Let me translate that for us. Verse 24, you are right to mourn for your great king, O Israel. He has been God's great provision for you. Such a beautiful one has died, one that we dearly loved. Let, let, let me help you notice a few things from my interpretation, cultural interpretation. God is the larger context of the, of the song. God is the larger context that explains the reality of a life and its work, even in the air-filled reign of Saul. You could say, wait a second, David, Saul was pretty bad. Like, he, you're going to have this song of the bow in this book of heroes? Seriously? Would you say that was a pretty unsuccessful reign? David would push back and say, who are you to speak against the Lord's anointed? Or as if he is limited in some way by the gifts and the character of the person who's in charge. Maybe he would point us to a few texts in Holy Scripture. Like Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. Or the end of Genesis when the brothers of Joseph are asking, what in the world just happened? And he can say, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. So Christians, maybe you just hear this lament song and realize mourning is okay. Not just personal grief, as we talked a bit about last time. But formal mourning is proper and good. A formal mourning process like a funeral is good and biblical and healthy and even by God's design. Last, and this is what Kaylee talked mostly about with our kids and she was right to do so, the emphasis on deep friendships. Behind all of the formality, behind all of the grief, even the proper praising of God's king at the time, Saul, is this friendship between David and Jonathan. 
The funeral song transitions, by the way, from third person to first person. Look at verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You can feel that as real and personal. It leaves a bit of the normal formality of a service, and it's heart to heart. It ends heart to heart. Think of who your brother would be, or your sister, or your close friend. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Now, sadly, this verse has been spun in an interesting way in recent years. This language at the end of verse 26 has been taken in a hypersexualized way as romantic love between two men. It has literally been one of the primer verses to make such an argument. I think it is seriously missing the point. The, the words go like this. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Again, that, to be fair, that's a little awkward in our ears. But let me explain. While thinking of that as romantic love is anachronistic. It's taking some oddities in our culture and translating it back a long time ago. Let me give you some examples. In, in the ancient world, the word love had less to do with romance and sexuality and way more to do with loyalty and covenant. So you'll see all throughout the Old Testament this Hebrew word that you have to spit to say, so don't try it until you're outside in your car. Chesed, chesed. And it literally means, it's often translated as love, but it means something more like covenantal love. Like I am bonded to you. It's not about romance. And such a covenantal love is something that could happen between God and his people. Again, again interesting, it's interesting that the way that gets expressed in the New Testament is through this image of marriage between Christ and the church. But love wasn't, the ancients weren't thinking about romance when they said love. You've just been way, had, there's been way too many Celine Dion, Mariah Carey songs that have infiltrated dentists and car radios and you name it, that in our culture, love is romance. In the ancient culture, love was commitment. So remember that every time you see God saying he loves you, for God so loved the world, it was a romance, like he thought it was cute. It was commitment that he was going to do whatever it took to accomplish his goals. He would be faithful. So when you say you love God, it's not just emotionalism, like you love pizza. When you say you love God, we understand the Bible saying you're committing to him. That, that, that song we sang at the end about submission, take my life and let it be, that's actually you saying you love God. That's not emotionalism. That's commitment language. A couple other details would be that the bond between men in a warrior culture, which they were warriors, by the way. I mean, what did they share with each other? They didn't, they didn't share handbags and, 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 and T-shirts. Jonathan gave David a bow. These are warrior men. The bond between men in a warrior culture could easily surpass the ancient relationship between a man and a woman. Sadly and truly, marriage in the ancient world was for procreation and parenting and some social material provisions. 
women couldn't own any property. You would get married if you couldn't own property. Like you, you, you had no rights. Wrongly, obviously, culture has changed in good ways in that regard. But I'm saying in the ancient world, marriage was like life-sustaining. A man's wife in the ancient world was not necessarily his best friend, his confidant, or even his social peer. But, but more than that, with this warrior culture, think of the physical intimacy that happens in sports culture. It's a little strange. I never had my hiney touched more. Than in a football game. And there was never any awkwardness about it. High knees are getting touched. I mean, literally face to face, little headbutt kisses or whatever you want to call that stuff. Like nobody looks at it like that is kind of weird. But if like, like after the sermon, somebody came up and said, that was a great sermon and grabbed me by the cheek, that'd be a little strange. I'd be like, thanks for that, but we didn't get a touchdown. But all the time, I mean, you're seeing that. You watch a couple of the games today, there'll be all these, all the, because there is this bond that all of a sudden goes so deep, like a team. It's like a team. If you've played team sports, you might be able to relate to that. But whatever that team could be, it doesn't have to be athletics. It could be other things. Have you ever been in a group? You ever been by? I remember when I worked at summer camp, we were just so bonded. I mean, we weren't slapping high knees and stuff. I mean, that'd be a little odd. But there's such a fellowship that when you left, you're just embracing and hugging. I mean, honestly, that's, I think, why Paul, five-ish times in the New Testament, says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, holy kiss was just a formal greeting. It wasn't romantic. But why is there physical touch? Because you're so bonded. Like when I walked into Frederick home, all I wanted to do was hug Larry. Because there was this deep reality that needed the physical touch. So for someone to take this text and to translate it into our modern world is so missing the point, but actually hurting the point. The point is those deep friendships are God-given gifts. And if you've had a brother or a sister like that, you are so blessed. And if you have not had that, I mourn for you. These closing words of David's eulogy reflect the importance of deep friendships. We live in a culture, by the way, where adults have fewer and fewer friends. You could even say that there is an epidemic among adults regarding friendship, and especially, gentlemen, among males in our culture. The average adult male, may this not be any of us, but the average adult male does not have one single deep friend. Lots of acquaintances, lots of people who might like you on Facebook, but not one deep friend who would be like a brother. Some of us have lost our ability to be social. Maybe post-COVID we got out of practice, or maybe we deal with issues of anxiety, or maybe just our techie world has actually separated us rather than brought us together. Some of us need to take some real steps, maybe right here in the church. You have an opportunity, right? We, we alternate between men's and women's retreats every year, and this year, this end of February, we have a men's retreat. I know, I mean, lots of red flags go up. I don't want to sleep in a room with another guy. Uh, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. I get anxiety on other, but there, there could be really good reasons why it's hard to do, but you get so much traction in just a couple days. 
That's like 50 weeks of little small talk grabbing a donut on a Sunday morning. I would hope that all of us would maybe not just desire, but pray for the kind of friendship that we see depicted in verses 26 and 27. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. I pray that your children and mine have friends like that. I pray that in good times and in bad times we have friends like that. And I actually hope that in the church that can actually happen among us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word which ministers to us. It it, it talks us through hard things like funerals, grieving, but it also presents to us this beautiful reality of deep friendships and the centrality of God even in death. And Lord, this week our church feels that need all the more. May we be a church that's willing to grieve and mourn and have formal funerals to which we participate as to the Lord. And may we be those kind of friends, the David and Jonathan friends, to those families. But even more broadly, Lord, may all of us find those kinds of brothers or sisters that we love dearly. Not a romanticized love, surfacy, but a covenantal commitment love, a bond that reflects the gospel, and how we relate to one another. Father, I pray for those who are lonely, who feel like they don't have those kind of friends and relationships. You would help them take the steps, and you would bring others to take steps toward them. Father, thank you that your word ministers to us in such a multiform way. Help us to receive it this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.